Welcome to Her Half of History, an evergreen podcast. My name is Lori. The current series is the history of girlhood, and this is episode 11.8, The Reading Girl, after 1860. It was a bright, sunny day on July 4th, 1862, in Oxford, England. Charles Ludwig Dodgson, an Oxford math professor, decided to take a friend and the three girls who lived next door on a picnic, where they begged for a story. Charles obliged and spun out a fantastical yarn, naming his protagonist after the middle child, the ten-year-old Alice. Only the Alice in the story fell through a rabbit hole into a world both strange and wonderful. The real Alice liked her story so much that she asked Dodgson to write it down, a process that took him a year and a half. But in 1864, he presented the original manuscript of Alice in Wonderland to her for Christmas. It was published in 1865 under his chosen pen name, Lewis Carroll. Alice in Wonderland was revolutionary. It is the original piece of children's literature, at least in its modern incarnation. It was unlike any of the books that I talked about last week because its purpose was purely to spark joy, both for the children and also for the author. It's playful and fun, and if there is a moral lesson to be learned, it's buried deep. Actually, I have heard spiritual lessons use quotes from Alice to prove a point, but nevertheless, whatever moral lesson it's got, it's subtle enough that it's possible to entirely miss it. The Wizard of Oz, Mary Poppins, Beatrix Potter, The Chronicles of Narnia, Dr. Seuss, all of these classic books to come, plus many, many more, owe a debt to Lewis Carroll for breaking the didacticism of earlier books for children and celebrating fantasy and imagination and a world where nothing was inevitable, not even the laws of physics. Children's literature would never be the same again. And yet, hard on its heels came a completely different tradition in children's literature. Louisa May Alcott was the daughter of the noted transcendentalist Bronson Alcott. She had grown up in a tight family with strong and sometimes unusual opinions about morals and values. She had already written and published sketches based on her brief experience as a nurse during the American Civil War. But in 1867, her publisher asked her to try writing a book for girls. The result was Little Women, which Louisa herself initially thought was dull. Like Alice in Wonderland, Little Women was an immediate and phenomenal success, but for entirely different reasons. Alice offered cleverness and freedom from reality. The March girls and Little Women were unmistakably real. They were, in fact, Louisa Alcott and her sisters. But readers then and now have loved them for their warmth and closeness, for the way they are good-hearted and really want to do the right thing, but also the way that they are deeply human and frequently fail to do the right thing. Don't we all? The Intimate Life at Home book would become a standard in children's literature, especially for girls. And books like Ellen Montgomery's Anne of Green Gables, Laura Ingalls Wilder's Little House books, and Beverly Cleary's Ramona books, plus many, many more, would all owe a debt to Little Women. And still, right at this same time period, there were other developments in children's lit. It's just less likely that you've read them. In 1860, the Beetle Publishing Company produced a book called Malayeska, or Indian Wife of the White Hunter, by Anne S. Stevens. It sold 300,000 copies and within five years had been translated into five languages. 
That, in and of itself, would not be enough to make it worth mentioning, but it is the original dime novel, or what the British would call penny dreadfuls. Dime novels were published cheap. They came only as paperbacks, and not very well-made paperbacks at that. If you were never assigned to read Malaeska at school, well, there is a reason for that. Here is a quote. Touch but a hair of her head, and by the lord that made me I will bespatter that tree with your brains. Thus spake William Danorth, white hunter. Many a dusky form bit the dust, and many a savage howl followed the discharge of his trusty gun. Nineteenth-century critics mostly didn't notice the racism, but they most certainly did notice the way all of those bulging arm muscles, strapping chests, smug superiority, and gratuitous displays of mindless violence set the hormones bubbling in the girls and boys who read them. Dime novel publishers were going for neither imagination and clever wordplay like Alice, nor the intimacy of a refined home like Little Women. Nope, dime novels were formulaic and superficial and clunky. In the modern world, they'd be written by AI, and AI would do just fine at generating them. In fact, the writers practically were AI in a 19th century sense. Publishers swapped out one writer for another without any noticeable change in the output, and the deadlines were intense. The original dime novels were westerns, a genre we associate mostly with boys and men, but it was not only boys who read them. Malaeska was actually a reprint from a story first published in a magazine, and the magazine in question was The Lady's Companion. It was written with girls and women in mind. Mostly, it was an adventure story. But if you want to look for a moral, then the moral was don't have an interracial marriage, a lesson which The Lady's Companion undoubtedly approved of. In addition, the dime novel publishers soon found there was money to be made in other areas, too. From westerns, they branched out into non-western adventure and romance. Reading girls particularly enjoyed dime novels like Only a Mechanic's Daughter, A Charming Story of Love and Passion, or The Unseen Bridegroom. The literati turned up their noses at the dime novels, but working-class girls loved them. Probably a high percentage of upper-class girls also loved them if they were unsupervised long enough to get their hands on them. Many of these books were written by women, and they sold considerably better than books by the likes of Nathaniel Hawthorne or Herman Melville. The heyday of the dime novel ended in the early to mid-20th century, but its influence is not dead. If you have ever enjoyed a western, a romance, a rom-com, a comic, a manga, a horror, or even a celebrity gossip magazine, it probably owes a debt to the dime novel and the penny dreadful. And I will hasten to add that all of those genres do have some shining examples of really good writing. Also at the same time, still in the 1860s, children's books were benefiting from dramatic improvements in the techniques of color printing. Back in episode 10.6, I talked about how Maria Sibylla Marion sold her books with illustrations of the natural world, and they came in two versions, the black and white version, which was cheaper, or the colored version, each of which was colored by hand. Maria herself did the first editions, but coloring books was also an industry, an industry in which children worked, in fact. Child workers were assigned colors, so one would fill in the red bits and then pass it on to the yellow child and then the blue child, etc. Even with the exploitation of children, that was expensive, so most books didn't have a lot of pictures, and most pictures were left black and white, and few of them were what you'd call high artistic achievements. 
That was normal until the 1840s, when lithography, which uses chemical processes to etch an image onto a stone or metal plate, became common. Woodblock engravers also improved their methods, and by the 1860s, a British publisher named Edmund Evans was producing what he called toy books, but I would call children's picture books. Evans didn't want the third- and fourth-rate artists who had generally produced book illustrations before. He was interested in real beauty, and he cultivated his artists. His name was new to me while doing this research, but two of his artists' names were not. The first was Randolph Caldecott, whose illustrations were such a success that in the U.S. there is an annual award for the best children's picture book, and it's called the Caldecott Medal. The second was Kate Greenaway, whose work was so popular she was a household name not only in her native Britain, but also in the U.S., Germany, and France. The British Annual Award for Best Children's Picture Book is the Greenaway Medal. Both Greenaway and Caldecott produced books that were beloved by girls at the time, and while those books are not generally well-known among children today, it was this group of artists who raised the expectation that a small child could have a beautiful and engaging book to look at, even before they knew how to read the words. Maurice Sendak, Dr. Seuss, Eric Carle, Sandra Boynton, and many, many others are following in their wake. Also at the same time, the 1860s strike again. The reading girl saw her access to magazines explode. Children's magazines had actually been around for quite a while, but like most publishing projects, these periodicals mostly failed. All of the early magazines were dominated by moral lessons and sentimental verses. There were some moderately successful ones, like the Juvenile Miscellany, run by Lydia Maria Child, who we met in episode 11.5, From Knucklebones to Bicycles. The Youth's Companion lasted longer, and unlike the dime novels, it featured tales written by authors you may have heard of, like Mark Twain. Jack London, Louisa May Alcott, Washington Irving, Edith Wharton, and Willa Cather. Periodicals for the Young was a serious place to break out into a serious writing career. All of those periodicals existed before the 1860s, but they, and others, also benefited from the improved printing methods and the massively increased market for reading material that would entertain rather than just instruct. Most of the new periodicals were aimed at both boys and girls, with most of the rest being aimed specifically at boys. Girls were not so well provided for, as publishers seemed to think they were not a viable market. That was a major misjudgment, as would be proved in 1880, when the British publisher of The Boys' Own Paper took a gamble on a new line called The Girls' Own Paper. It quickly sold better than The Boys' version. Notable authors who appeared on its pages included L.M. Montgomery, author of Anne of Green Gables, and the Baroness Orczy, author of The Scarlet Pimpernel. Periodicals were also, in some ways, the inheritors of the courtesy books I mentioned last week, the ones that told you how to behave yourself. Only now they could do so in the form of advice columns. Girls wrote in with their problems, and the editor, or more likely a low-paid lackey, wrote back with advice. And I am preparing a bonus episode on advice from the girls' own paper to be released in the coming week. You should totally sign up on Patreon or Into History to listen to it. Links in the show notes and on the website. The fact that any of these formats were directed at working and middle-class girls is proof that the price of printing was below the wildest dreams of Gutenberg, but even so, there were many who could not afford them, or 
there were many, like myself, who can afford books, just not in the enormous and gluttonous quantities in which I require them. And that is why libraries are the best places on God's green earth. Libraries in the early 1800s did begin to have children's books, but they were pretty much totally ineffective at getting those books to children. For one thing, the libraries weren't free. They were supported by subscriptions collected from the members. And if a working-class girl can't afford books, she probably also can't afford a membership. For another thing, the population was mostly rural, and the libraries were mostly urban. And for still another thing, children often weren't even allowed in the libraries, on the theory that they would disturb the adults and damage the books. According to the American Library Association, the very first free modern public library funded by the local government opened its doors in 1833 in Peterborough, New Hampshire. Other sources give other dates and locations, so I don't really know, but the concept spread. However, it was not until 1877 that Mrs. Minerva Saunders, a librarian in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, set aside a corner in her library specifically for children. She got special chairs for them, and she allowed children to have their own accounts and to borrow books. Mrs. Minerva Saunders is truly one of the great minds of her age. By 1900, many libraries had followed her example. The push for libraries for children was in part a reaction against the dime novel. The theory was that if kids could borrow quality books for free, they wouldn't be so enraptured with the ten-cent trash. I'm not sure that theory panned out, but I support the library initiative. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. By 1900, we're talking about an absolute flood of written words, and you may well be asking, surely not all of the words were written in English? And indeed they were not. As I discussed last week, children's literature was in some ways a British invention, but the rest of the world was catching on. By the turn of the 20th century, the reading girls of other nations had some real gems to choose from. 
In Germany, the Brothers Grimm had published many editions of their household tales for children. German reading girls also had the tales of E.T.A. Hoffman, who wrote a strange story called The Nutcracker and the Mouse King in 1816, well before Alice in Wonderland, though it certainly shares some common elements. In Switzerland, Johanna Spyri wrote the internationally famous Heidi about girlhood in the Alps. In Italy, Pinocchio was having adventures. The French had not only Charles Perrault's Mother Goose Tales, not originally intended for children, but also Madame le Prince de Beaumont's Magasin des Enfants, which was intended for children and included the shortened version of Beauty and the Beast. I am mentioning only the ones that I think my English-speaking audience may have heard of. There were lots of others. However, you may have noticed that all of those titles are from major European languages. In Denmark, Hans Christian Andersen, who didn't even like children, had written some of the world's most beloved children's stories. But for the most part, languages from smaller European countries had a major problem. Without a large population, the number of children interested in books is small. Therefore, the prices are high. Therefore, the market is still smaller because most children cannot afford them. Therefore, the price is still higher. It's a cycle and a problem that continues to this day. As for the world outside of Europe and the European-dominated colonies, they sometimes had that problem of many languages, each spoken by a relatively small population, but some of them had huge populations, and there were a few attempts to provide for those kids. In India, Raja Shiv Prasad wrote books for children in Hindi, but for the most part, these countries either had no strong publishing industry at all, or they were struggling under the pressure of European expansion, either politically, militarily, or at least financially, or they had simply not yet transitioned to thinking about children as a distinct group within the reading public. Which brings us, at last, into the 20th century worldwide. Publishing in the 20th century faced wartime shortages and multiple economic downturns, all of which impacted books for girls. But by far, the larger impact came from the new availability of other ways to get your story fix and your information high, by which I mean radio, movies, TV, video games, and the internet, all of which were predicted to end reading, corrupt the young, degrade society, and end civilization as we know it. Funnily enough, no one seemed to remember that the same arguments were leveled at reading in previous centuries. Remember Fordyce from last week? Remember the critics of dime novels from this week? Somehow the reading girl managed to hold on to her books throughout all of this, and indeed children's lit metastasized in multiple ways in the 20th century. On a minor but significant to me note, the genre of historical fiction was invented. Laura Ingalls Wilder's Little House books, written from 1932 to 1943, were the most famous ones directed at girls, but they were not the first nor the last examples. Another development, the non-European world got into the game. The first full-length children's novel written in Chinese was published in 1932. Kamal Kalani, an Egyptian author, published many children's books in Arabic between 1930 and 1950. In 1966, the Empress of Iran, Farah Pahlavi, wrote a children's book herself called The Daughter of the Sea. It was the first publication of a new institute intended to promote children's literature. Despite substantial political changes, including for the Empress, the Institute kept on working. In Kenya, a writer named Charity Wakiuma pioneered children's lit for her country in 1966 with Mweru, the ostrich girl. There are countless other examples from nearly every other country on Earth, 
and yet there remain problems. As late as 1984, an advocate for books in Ghana was able to say, most children in Africa see and handle books for the first time only in the classroom. In most African countries, the only books young people have access to are textbooks. End quote. But according to the nonprofit Books for Africa, 40% of African children to this day don't even read textbooks because they aren't in school at all. I am willing to bet that over half of those children are girls. The last 20th century change which I will mention is the split-off of young adult from children's books. That distinction took a long time. Some books had always been targeted that way. Little Women certainly wasn't read by five-year-olds. But not until the 1950s were books written and published with teenagers in mind specifically. That's not surprising timing. As we will see in a few weeks, that's exactly when society at large started noticing that teenagers exist. The split between children's fiction and young adult fiction, and later the insertion of middle grade fiction in between them, allowed writers to discuss things that had most certainly never been included in earlier children's lit. Like when Judy Bloom was open about menstruation in Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, published in 1970. Let's just say that the March girls in Little Women surely had periods, but you'd never know it from the text. That was another big change during the 20th century, but the boundaries between these categories are fuzzy. Kids have been reading books intended for older people since kids learned to read at all, but by the early 21st century, things were also going the other way around. The hottest books in any genre were young adult, by which I mean Harry Potter, Twilight, The Hunger Games, all of which were written by women, by the way. They didn't get to their cult status on the basis of young adult spending power. Nope, according to Publishers Weekly, a full 55% of the works that publishers have said are for ages 12 to 17 are in fact being purchased by those of us who are 18 and older. Other estimates are even higher than 55%. And we are not buying them for the teenagers in our lives. A full 78% of us are buying them for our own consumption, and I place myself firmly in that class. To some, this is a matter of concern. After all, if the consumers of young adult are actually just adults, then we've basically co-opted the genre, stolen it, as it were, from the youth it was meant to serve, because publishers will make decisions based on our wishes, not the teen's needs. Basically, it's a rejection of the whole trend of children's lit, which was supposed to be about recognizing the beauty and specialness of childhood. Maybe so. But as an adult, I'll say what it is, is a missed opportunity. If so many of us old fogies like young adult lit, then obviously the adult publishers are not providing us with something we want. Just a thought. Whatever the format, the reading girl is now drowning in a sea of choices. Never before has there been so much to read in so many genres and so many formats. Sure, most of it is trash, but that has always been true. Just look at those penny dreadfuls. Happy reading. My major source today is the International Companion Encyclopedia of Children's Literature, edited by Peter Hunt. Check out the website herhalfofhistory.com for more sources, a transcript, and pictures. While you're there, you can drop a note in the comments about your favorite children's lit. I'm always looking for more to read, and I'm an enthusiastic believer in adults reading books for kids. On the website, you'll also find links to connect with me on social media. 
or to show your support through Patreon, Into History, or Buy Me a Coffee, all of which bring you different benefits at different price points, and all of which help keep this podcast rolling and free. Next week is Thanksgiving here in the U.S., and I will be taking a week's break, though that bonus episode on the girl's own advice will come out for supporters. After Thanksgiving, I'll be back here with an important prerequisite to being a reading girl, a basic education. That'll be girls at school in two weeks. Thanks. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.